you are, is get you a good cup and with good coffee in it, a good ink pen, a good journal, uh, and uh, and your favorite Bible, especially the one that you love to make your notes in. I mean, mine is almost the scripture is almost becoming ineligible on mine because we've got it so marked up. But those little markings literally are the places that I mark the places that mark something in my heart that I want to always remember. Because even if I lose a notebook, I'll never, I'll never get rid of my Bible. Uh, so here we are. Today we're going to talk about that season of transference where the kingdom shifted uh, uh, during, in that transferring between uh, the days of Saul and the days of David. And uh, I want to remind you now that um, we're going to, I'm going to be referring to a lot. I'm going to refer to something that you may have heard in our, one of our Hannah sessions or when we were talking about how Samuel came into his, one of the Samuel times. All of those things are incredibly relevant. We're going to be watching for the things that we learned about Saul and what happened in his days. All of those play into this. And so you literally know, that, know this, that literally... In this story today, and what we're talking about today, or in, the, or in these sessions, you're going to see that you have Hannah represented, her impact and influence, Saul, or, or Samuel, his impact and influence, Saul's impact and influence, and now David's, and you will see the other as well. Even though it's a thousand years into the future, you will see that Messianic, or that uh, Jesus's, the part that Jesus played, even in these days, because he was already set in motion for those covenantal promises. That's what these people are setting in motion and playing out. And, uh, and when we get into the musical aspect of this, you'll see how David would actually create music that sustained those prayers, promises, and prophecies until Jesus came and fulfilled them. So the, these, uh, these always keep in mind, look for, look for Jesus in every one of these. Look for what God was doing in, in, uh, in David and Samuel and Saul and, and Hannah. Uh, it's an incredible interweaving, really a tapestry. I'll say it like this, a tapestry of truth that many times, because they're not tied together and not given opportunity to honor one another, they don't ever become one piece of cloth. But my hope is, as we see this as a time in Israel's history and in a time in world history, that everything changed because of these five that we're, that we're given attention to. So let's get, get right into it here. It says, now the Lord said to Samuel, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure and I'm confident that Samuel loved Saul and, and respected him in, in probably deeper ways than, we, than, than where we see on the surface, because typically on the surface, we just see Saul the bad guy, David the good guy. David the, the, the uh, young underling, the hero that comes out of nowhere and, and becomes the king. And, uh, and we, all, we all love those kind of stories. And on one level it's true, but on another there's a deeper, uh, a deeper expression of the heart of God in all this that we sometimes miss. So, Saul was not always the bad guy. But watch this. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, how long are you, are you going to mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him? Therefore we typically stop. 
We shouldn't stop in the middle of that sentence. God had not rejected Saul. God had rejected him from reigning over Israel. An important distinction. And if you, uh, and there's numerous places where you can see, but every every time it it wasn't about rejecting him. It was it was about rejecting him from um, reigning over Israel. You find it um, in numerous numerous occasions all throughout the story, and it's always about rejecting him from reigning over Israel. It's not about rejecting him as a person. Yes, he failed. Yes, he he sinned, and he he sinned deliberately at times. And uh, but the mercy of God. Don't you see how the mercy of God works here? What? How long will you mourn for, for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So I've provided a new day. Now let's look at this rejection thing one more time. He says, when I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, well, in my Bible, if you go straight across the page, you see over in verse 14, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. That's a bit distressing, I think. <laughs> if you just look at it, uh, uh, you know, just take it at face value and don't, and, uh, and don't look a little deeper into it. Because what was going on here, he says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit. And some, some of your Bibles might say an evil spirit sent by God. Well, that, that seems so horrible to, to us to think that God would send an evil spirit upon Saul. But the fact of the matter is, God will send whatever spirit necessary to vex the heart of man to give him opportunity to respond correctly and right the wrongs of the sin and the disobedience and the witchcraft and everything that he had been engaged in. Now God is sending an evil spirit to vex his heart, give him opportunity to repent. It's a picture of the mercy of God. And, and, and it's what God will allow sometimes to happen in our lives so that we can really uh, renew. You know, remember when David said, Oh Lord, create in me, uh, uh, create in me a clean heart, because he had dived off into a, a dark heart, into a sinful situation. But then he comes back with a song and he says, Oh Lord, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit in me. So what you're seeing there is God is giving Saul an opportunity, reigning in the Israel positionally thing, position or no position. God was saying, I want your heart. So come on, let's get this thing back together here. And you know what? There's six uh, different kinds uh, or, or opportunities or things that, that can depart from man that are of, of the nature uh, and the divinity of God. For one... And, and uh, right here in, uh, in 18, verse, uh, we'll see, I got it written down here. In uh, chapter 18, verse 12, look at it. Where, where is 18, 12? I'd say it's over here. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. You can also see that same principle in, in uh 
and 15, uh, 16, 15 through 16, also in Judges. Another thing you, you can see scripturally is the, uh, is the Holy Spirit can depart. There you see it in 16, 14, where the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Another thing that can depart is God's glory. Uh, you see that in 4.21 and 22. And also you can see that in, in the book of Ezekiel 10.18. Another thing that can depart is God's word. You see it in Deuteronomy 4.9, Proverbs 3.21, Hebrews 2.1. Uh, interesting that, that even the word can depart. God, uh, here's a unique one. God's soul can depart. In Hebrews 10.38 in Jeremiah 6, 8. And you see at times that, it, uh, that God's mercy uh, was, was, with, was withheld or withdrawn. In 2 Samuel 7, 15. So there is a withdrawing, but, but uh, if I can just, let me tell you a quick little story. I'll make it quick. I remember when our little girl, Ramey, uh, was about uh, nine or 10 months old. It turns out that she was one of those uh, little children, little babies that never crawled. Uh, she never crawled on the floor like, uh, like babies do. She walked. And what happened, how this whole thing happened was, one day I noticed, uh, Denise and I were looking at her, she pulled up on the coffee table and, uh, and she'd, she'd been sitting there on her blanket and she just leaned over, pulled up on the coffee table and just turned and took two steps over to the couch. And we looked at each other and said, she just walked. She, she just walked. But she's nine months old. You don't do that. So what, what we did is uh, Denise sat in the floor, uh, cross-legged like this. And I took Remy and set her right in front of Denise. And she just took these two steps again. And Denise caught her. She turned Remy around facing me. And she comes, she took about three or four steps and I grabbed her. Then I turned her around. She goes back to, to uh, uh, Denise. And, and then this time she turns her around and when she starts coming toward me, when she starts walking toward me, looking, I'm, you know, we, we're, we, we see each other. And as she's coming toward me, I start backing up. And the, the farther I go, the more she comes. And she was so excited and she's trying, she's trying so hard to get there. And just when, she, the, when the, her face changed, her emotion changed, and when suddenly this anticipation started turning into anxiety or fear, I immediately just reached in and grabbed her. And see, what we don't understand a lot of times on our journeys into truth, sometimes we got to realize we are pursuing a withdrawing God. But it's out of relational mercy, kindness, all of the things that, that make heart to heart happen. But sometimes it feels like God is withdrawing. What he's trying to do is he's drawing you into a position where, and if necessary, he will come to your rescue immediately. He will, he will inhabit whatever the, the, the depth of the power, the desire, and the need in your life. Sadly, Saul didn't do that. Saul, because position, prestige, and, and probably possessions. You know, there's a certain amount of, of pomp that comes with king 
and uh, prestige and position and all this kind of stuff. And uh, he had come to the place where he had learned to rely on other things. And what God was now, and now this, I know this, maybe I'm overdoing it a bit, but God was now allowing an evil thing to come into the, come into the atmosphere that one more time would give Saul that opportunity uh, to embrace and be embraced by the Father. Now, and uh, <clears throat> I, I dare say that probably every one of us know what I'm talking about. That, 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 but, it's, but it's the mercy of God that was being, being one more time extended to Saul. Now, and um, so let's, let's, let's go back to verse two now. Let's finish the, verse one. I'm sending you, Jesse, I'm sending you now. Take this horn of oil. I've rejected him from reigning over Israel, but fill your horn with oil and go. You remember the horn that we were talking about in the, of, over in the days of, uh, uh, of Samuel being dedicated in the house of the Lord. Well, here you're about to see something happen that has never happened, ever, ever happened. Oh, a king is about to be anointed with a horn. Hmm. Um, the first king of Israel was anointed with a vial of oil. That was, that was Saul. But now this, which is a man-made fragile vessel, remember? But this is a horn of oil, which represents uh, projected power and authority. Uh, it's, it comes out of the word kiran, or kiran, uh, which means uh, uh, light, um, a ray of light, a projection of light. It's a, it's a beautiful thing when you, you begin to imagine. Now, in, the, in those days, you didn't carry oil in... Uh, and horns. A horn was something that a nomad or whoever, a sojourner in the desert uh, would carry to dip water out of a spring. It was a drinking vessel. Water was carried in, in, it, in it. But that's about to change here. He says, and Samuel said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know, uh, God, I know you've got a plan here for, a, to, for anointing a new king. But look, how can I go? If Saul hears this, He's good. He'll kill me. But the Lord said, now a lot of times we, we hear it like this. Samuel says, Lord, I'm not going. No way I'm going to go there because Saul will kill me. That's not what's happening at all. He simply asked a honest question. How can I do this? How can I go? Saul will kill me. So God gives him an honest answer. He says, here's how you do it. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, because that's what you do. Go do, go do you. Go be who you already are. And so, and then while there, you invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I'll show you what you shall do. I'm going to show you. I'll walk you through it. You shall anoint for me the one. Now watch this that I name to you. And that uh, now what we says the one I named you. I'm going to look back. Look at this verse over here in twelve eighteen. You're going to point out the guy, point out the one that I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming. Beautiful and amazing picture here. Let's don't miss this. Why in the world would these elders be trembling at Samuel's coming? Because remember, Samuel 
He was a powerful man in the, in the world. And when this powerful prophet, judge, priest, everything that he was shows up, they know something is up. Why in the world would Samuel show up? Because And don't think for one minute that everybody didn't know that something was up. And it would, they didn't know if it was supposed to be, again, anticipation, or was it supposed to be anxiety? Because here comes Samuel, a striking presence, hair dragging the ground, white hair dragging the ground behind him. No razor had ever become upon his head, remember? Because he had been sanctified, saved unto the purposes of the prophetic mantle that he would wear and carry, and carry graciously, and he would also carry incredibly effectively. And here comes this dragon hair fire in his eyes. And you know why they were suddenly afraid? Not from his appearance. If you look over at 1 Samuel 12, 18, you'll see why all, the, all of them were afraid. That, that was when, so Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all of the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Samuel always had this uh, relationship uh, with the presence of God. The presence of God never departed from Samuel. Samuel carried demonstrations and manifestations of the presence of God that kept the entire nation of Israel kind of a bit on pins and needles, not knowing what, here is the representation. Not a word he ever spoke, ever spoke, ever fell to the ground, denied by God. Wow, and he's coming to the little Bethlehem? Why would he come out here to Bethlehem? They trembled at his coming and said, oh, 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 oh. Do you come peaceably? See it there? Are you coming? And he said, peaceably, because I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Here's, a, here's something pretty amazing. Sanctify yourselves. Sanctify yourselves. Separate yourselves unto the purposes of God. This is about something God's doing. And come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. What's up? So it was, they came, when they came, that he looked at Eliab. Now, again, this is a really strange occurrence that's going on. Not only did Samuel come to do the sacrifice, he's invited these guys. They're standing there. Samuel looks at Eliab and says, wow, this guy, like Saul, he stands heads above the rest. Look at the gifting, the charismatic personality. Oh, look what a leader. And he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And Eliab's name even means God is father. El Eab, God is father. El Eaba, where we get the word Abba, father. God is father, is before him. And then God corrected Samuel's opinion and, and his declaration because he had already said, surely this is the guy. And God says, no, Samuel, I'm going to correct your opinion and we're going to change your declaration. Well, wouldn't it be awesome to walk with God in such a way as Samuel did? It's when, because naturally, I mean, naturally this is the guy from all appearances this is the guy. No, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. Not rejected him, I've refused him, not the one. For the Lord does not see as man sees. 
For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So he calls Abinadab, uh, Abinadab, that, that second son. And uh, uh, all seven boys are lined up there. And he made him pass before Samuel. He said, nope, this is not, he's not chosen. So what you have one is one refused, one just not chosen. No judgments against them. They don't even know what their, uh, they don't even know what their, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They don't even know what they're um, auditioning for, you know. And uh, what kind of audition is this? And neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass. And, and Abinadab's name means my father is noble. And then uh, Shammah steps up. Uh, my father, uh, 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 his name means astonishment. Well, this astonishing young man, nope, we don't need astonishment. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Can, can you not see the puzzled look on Samuel's face when he knows he walked this whole process out with God and the one he's looking for is not there. And so he just asks the question, Samuel said to Jesse, are, hey, are all, are all your young men here? Are, are they not all here? And, and, and you, I can just see uh, Jesse starting to squirm. He says, well, actually, uh, strange that you would ask I do have another son, but he's, he's really not king material. He's a musician. He's really not the one you're looking for. Uh, he's, he's probably out in the field somewhere right now singing to a sheep or writing a poem about a flower or something. He's really not king material. I mean, he's, he's overly sensitive. Uh, he's, and, and as a matter of fact, if you know the truth, there's a, you know, well, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this, but it, but anyway, no, and while he's fumbling around, Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him. We're not gonna sit down until he comes. And with that, everything changed. So he sent and brought him in. Can you see one of these elders? Because there's only like the elders in the, in the aristocracy there going after David. And they walk up on David singing in the shepherd's field. Do you know that some scholars believe that the actual song that he was singing, the longing that he was singing from, is incredibly important to everything that God would do in his future because he was a singing a song of longing and loss and rejection. And in our very next session, I'm going to show you the, the rest of the scene and what the song was that is believed to be the actual song that he was singing when the elders found him. And the way they found him was they heard his song. So, all right, see you next time. All right. Hey, we got more people. How are you? What, you th what are we thinking? Uh, I probably should tell you that as we're doing these Ray Hughes videos, I can't send them out ahead of time because it's not that kind of format. Um, 
so I can't send them out ahead of time to watch. So you might want to bring something to take notes with as we're watching. Uh, any thoughts? Any thoughts right out the gate? If not, we'll, I'll start talking about other points. But uh, what, did you, what is something you pulled from that that did provoked you to think? Or Mr. Barry? I wrote it, I wrote it down. All right. sending out evil spirits or, or harmful spirits or whatever. I can't remember exactly what word he used. He says he vanishes um, and ultimately it was for repentance. He used the word vanish, he used the word repentance. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used the word send and he used the word allow, which are two very different ideas. I know in when you take a look at um, the, the spirit that that uh, takes the children um, in, in Passover, Right, that it actually says, that I think the language says that God sent that spirit to do that. So I understand the word send. Uh, but I was caught for a moment on the idea of God sending those spirits for a good purpose, but the fact that he was sending, send, I forget what term he used, but basically sending sending bad things. <laughs> that person, that person that thing. Yeah. So that's, that's my thought and or question most of the question yeah sure no I I I totally get it um anybody else have thoughts on that on the uh God sending the spirits um the evil spirits to vex his soul um vex is just the the old King James language but any other thoughts on that uh questions thoughts I, I, you know, I'm, I would like to talk about it, but does anybody else have anything they'd like to throw in there with that? So, okay. I mean, I know the thing that pops into my head is when Paul talks about, like, turning over someone who won't repent or, sure. you know, um, yeah. turning them over to the destruction of their flesh, like turning them over to Satan. Yeah. Um, he turned over Alexander the coppersmith and he said in hopes that Satan would thrash his flesh in order to save his soul. Yes. That's the other thing that popped into my head. Miss Kirsten? So I would like to look up, because his translation said distressing spirit, which for me was helpful because even though mine has evil and then you can go look it up, I'd actually like to do a little word search around that because when you're, when you're absent, when you're misaligned from the Lord, yeah. A spirit that would be a blessing to you when you're aligned with the Lord is actually a vexing, distressing, like you're suffocated. You're suffocated. Like when you're misaligned and you're living contrary to him, the, the glory of God can sometimes be, the, the, that's clearly in scripture. So I'd actually, because that distressing makes sense to me in that regard, like that, that God sending this spirit, um, it's still from his kingdom, but it would be very distressing from someone who's actively, um, it's it's not just misguided like he is actively warring against the warring spirit. against God's kingdom and so then your experience of that that spirit would be very distressing yeah so I don't know. <coughs> yes that's a helpful word so thinking of that distressing spirit makes me think of what happened later on when that distressing spirit came upon Saul he called David in laid the harp and sing and that wouldn't lift yeah yeah, true. So that's a good point. Um, so let's, let's put all that together. God's sending distressing spirits. 
Um, if you read the whole Bible, um, not just cherry-picked New, New Testament lines, um, you do have to reconcile or reckon within yourself the idea that God is kind of in control of everything and there's no limitation. So, effectively, when you read the whole Bible, uh, the Old Testament especially, you kind of don't see this evangelical picture of we being good people with God are at this war with an enemy that's, that's the demonic kingdom. Like, we are kind of in a, in a battleground scenario, so it's an easy picture to paint. But the, the idea that God is out of control of it is not in the Bible. Um, the, the idea that God created it for his, for like that is his perfect plan and purpose is also not in the Bible. So we have to kind of reconcile some, a couple, a couple misguided notions makes none of it make sense, if you, if you know what I'm saying. And I don't know that I'm prepared to articulate a crystal clear view of, of how I've understood the Old Testament and how, you know, like the four horsemen that are in the Bible, uh, you know, they're answering to God, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it's some wild ideas. And, you know, Job, you know, the sons of God showed up for a council meeting and Job was there. It's not like, and that guy was there. It's, yeah, he's there that day. Like it's, it's some weird ideas. Hold on. And um, I'm already on a roll. Uh, so the, the four horsemen, you know, like the four horsemen in the vision, like in uh, Zechariah, like the, the four horsemen, like pestilence and war and all this stuff. They're like, there's like, where have you been? Have you been roaming the earth to and fro like you told us, boss? I inferred the last part, but it's like, and they're at bay. And so it's, it's, it's as if he did a very good job of, you know, kind of a country boy explaining. Like he, God in that moment, it was like Saul's out of control. He used another line later. He said Saul had learned to depend on things other than God to get him through. Saul's not just Joe Blow having a bad day in his everyday life. He's the king of Israel, meaning He's held to a much higher standard for God's purposes, right? He can't just go off and la-la land and God not correct it. So it's like it says that God sent this distress in spirit. He later says because God had um, uh, – because he, he had learned to depend on other things. And it's in hopes that the distress would say in his mind, in his hopes, he would say, man, I used to feel so good when I was with God, and now I feel so bad. I have to repent and get back to God. It's presumable, even though the language maybe not be as clear, that the way David writes his psalms, as you know, we're good, he's going to get into some of those later. But it's presumable that David's, you know, he, again, he mentioned it a little bit. He was like, you know, he's gone off into the dark land, and he's like, God, give me a new clean heart. Like it's, he's like that. The the the, the repentance thing works better in David's heart because it's a pure heart to begin with. So this idea that um, you know that. Sometimes God would lovingly allow chaos into our hearts and lives in order to lead us to repentance. It's not crazy. Uh, like it, you use the one example that Paul used in the New Testament. It's pretty clear that he turned Alexander the Coppersmith who did them much harm. He turned them over to Satan in order to thrash his flesh to save his soul. Like, so an idea that um, one of the ideas and uh, the way like her dad would say it just, you know, again, it's kind of more like catchphrase, but it, it, it's kind of, it's there scripturally. He would say that Satan is an unpaid servant of God. Meaning, 
if you're serving God with God, walking with God, doing all these God things, you're going to be with God. Satan's really not going to have a whole lot of say-so in your life. That's just a fact. Um, if you're straying from God, all of a sudden it's like you've opened a door for the Satan to come poke at you. Um, again, it's not a war that God's in against an equal adversary. He's controlling everything. He has this perfect plan, but he has this servant, son of God, according to Job. Uh, the book of Jude would call him um, uh, dignitary of God. <laughs> That's weird language for us as evangelicals. But, um, they were using in the book of Job. This is just to kind of shape how off we think about some of the stuff. So they're being rebuked because they um, brought, uh, how does it say it? Uh, let me look it up real quick. It's uh, just so I don't uh, butcher it. I'm not thinking super straight. Right. Let me see right here. I can get there. Two seconds. I'm really good at this. Jude 13. Um, spots in the love feast. Wondering. Nah, nah, nah. Okay. These are, they're talking about the bad people in the church. Uh, are you in Jude or Jude? Jude. Okay. Sorry. I didn't plan on using this. Okay. Okay. Likewise, talking about the bad people in the church, verse 8 in Jude, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed the body of Moses, dared not bring a reviling accusation, but said the Lord rebuke you. Now, you're going to have to go back and read that a little closer, but they're referencing that the archangel Michael didn't even bring like you know, the way we talk about Satan, it's basically this line in Jude says, yeah, not even Archangel Michael did that because it's implying Satan has a job. It, some weird ideas, I know. Please don't think I'm getting too big on Satan. <laughs> I'm not. But, but it's you got to read the whole thing. It's all there. Now, what is the purpose? Does Satan get half of us? Absolutely not. Satan gets none of us at the end of all this. He's a what we would call, I, I don't think he fares well at the end. I don't think at the end of all this, Satan, God's like, job well done, Satan. No. He lost his ability to be on the good side of God, to be on the winning team. It's in his best interest that we fail as a partner for God because I believe, I can't show you a line where this is proved, but this is more of a contextual thing. I believe that when humanity reaches its full manifestation as glory-carrying sons of God, as it says we will, Revelation 21 kicks into full effect. Once the earth is completely reached its place, the earth and all of nature is not subjected to futility, as Roman 8 says anymore, because the sons of God have manifested fully. I believe that Satan no longer will be locked once and forever into the dungeon of darkness. I believe that because he will have no longer have a purpose. Right now, he has a purpose. And that's, if we're not vexed when we depart from God, what would bring us back? Right? If we didn't follow God and we didn't do anything right and everything just kept clicking along and hunky-dory, it would not go well for humans at this phase of life because God is not the governor of all of our hearts. He's not. He's not the governor of most of the people who call themselves believers right now. They understand the ideas better than the actual heart posture of following God at all costs, right? So Satan has a purpose. His things have a purpose. They don't have access into your life as long as you are, like Saul before this moment, serving God. Um, it's a really neat 
system and it's not as scary if you look at it like it's actually just for purpose. God wants to run it. Like nothing leads us back to him like hardship. Read the entire Bible. Things are good. They astray from God. Things get hard. They cry out to God. Things get good. They go astray from God. Things get, he, he, they go astray. They get hard. They cry out. It's just like, it's a, it's a circular broken cycle. But if you notice that cycle, it, it starts in Genesis when they depart from the garden and the sin begins to permeate the earth. And that broken cycle, cycle starts, but you'll notice that each time it comes around, God adds a new player that makes it a little better and a little better and a little better. And we get to, he, he keeps adding these players that make it a little better and gets it a little closer. And then we get to Jesus. And it's like this light year jump of like, he really increases our odds of getting this right when Jesus shows up and, and gives us faith and grace to permeate our hearts. However, we're still kind of in the system, even though Jesus expedited it. And we grew a lot, a lot faster in 2,000 years than we did prior to that. But while the cycle is still going, the enemy camp has a purpose. And that purpose is to drive everybody towards God. It's the goodness of God to lead us to repentance. Well, how do we do that? It can't be what's so good. On the, uh, we deal with uh, addicts and rehab stuff uh, you know, on and off, right? The worst thing you can ever do to an addict is prop them up. Give them a place to live and money to buy drugs and enabling they call it like the worst you they will be an addict to the day they die if you prop them up the only question of when they're going to change is when you somebody's going to pull the rug out from under them not the conversation for the day i promise you but that's god in our life if he if there were no nothing if there was no satan to put some pressure on us would we really stay in hot pursuit to god as we think we would now to some of us Yes, I don't need a lot of negative Satan pressure to keep me going. Um, I don't think. Or maybe I'm just afraid of the pressure. I don't know. <laughs> but I do know that there was a time in my life, short of that pressure, I wouldn't be standing here today. Short of absolute chaos, destruction, foundation crumbling, all my high school buddies were dying and going to prison. Like, short of the pressure, I don't know that I would have changed. If that life was going good, why would I say I got to start over? You know, there's this, uh, you know, there's these ideas in the Bible that we have to reconcile and be like, sometimes our doctrines, our dogmas are just like, yeah, that doesn't make sense over here. And this one, and then and we have to take this big picture of like, what's going on? And so this vexing spirit, it's not that that was God's perfect plan for Saul. It's not like he picked, not like uh, his plan all along was for Saul to go astray. I believe that Saul could have kept his heart right and we would have just be reading a slightly different story right yeah. now. The story where Saul blesses David. Sure, it's a presumable that he just would have handed the torch down to the right guy and it would have been like, it doesn't have yeah. to go into chaos according to God, yeah. but man's failed partnership keeps it in that broken cycle for now. I do believe it gets better. Jillian, right on. Uh, let's see. So, da, 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 da. I think that covers a lot. Oh. Does that answer your question? No, it hasn't yet. Because he said so, allowed versus six. Yeah, allowed versus He was six. like, he wanted you to, although that was amazing. That was really well, good. I really wasn't listening. No, no. <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were circling around it. You just allowed no, This is all great. These are all great things. And then the question really comes down to, so, so and he, 
he was talking about evil and evil spirits, and I absolutely agree. I don't disagree with anything. There's nothing I disagree with. That's um, a good question. Being said, and I understand the vaccine yeah. and all those things. It was that he said at one point, because I, all the stuff you said about Satan, I yeah. loved it. That's great, and I hope you're recording, because this will be something I'll listen to again, you're not. Oh, boy. I am. Okay. Good. Okay, great. I'm on it, Barry. Um, I'm yeah, that good at this. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so um, yeah, it was that the language that he that he used yeah. up there was that was that he he was sent to do the evil right by God because he read that scripture. Can I add scripture now? Says that. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. What was the exact line that it says that? I'll look it up while it's, she's doing it's, it. It's um, he read sixteen sixteen fourteen, um, and then there's another one where it says sent, and I'll find that in a second while she's talking. I was back in. 16.14. There are other stories where we do hear that the destroyer is sent by God. And so I, I get that. Um, it says that when he was talking about that, there's, there's a distinction there between those two words. In Job, the destroyer is different than Satan, too, right? Is that what we want to open that up? Tori. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, when he was talking, I automatically thought of Isaiah 45. Um, when, when he's talking about like sending Cyrus out to help and um, it says in verse 7 I form the light and create darkness I make peace and create calamity I the Lord do all these things and that's immediately what I thought of when you know it said that he sent a distressing spirit um, which goes along with everything that you're saying as far as like creating that pressure to lead us back to the Lord but that's what I thought of you say that in Second Chronicles seven fourteen too. <clears throat> when I when I send pestilence and fears, if you will turn turn. Yeah. Ways. Well. Yeah, I guess the sent versus allowed though. As far as that goes, I don't. I'm not sure. With God kind of being in control of everything, I don't know that those two are any different. I, you know what I mean, like. It's almost like we're, I would say we choose our own paths in most of the time in life. Sometimes the path is chosen for us, but most of the time we choose our own path. So it's like God sent it versus we're allowed to choose our own paths and get the results. I, I don't know. I guess it's whichever one makes your heart more motivated. For, for me, Yeah. He, he knows that this bad thing from Satan is coming towards you, and he allows that to happen versus him, him actively, actively doing actively that, and then, passively. Yeah, and, and why I'm asking is just because we've we've had some questions come up in conversations with with people where you know the question starts with the how does a good God dot dot dot, and mm -hmm. been really great iron iron sharpening questions because it's like oh I believe this thing. And then I suddenly can't articulate it. Yeah. Because I've lived it and understood it for a while, but I can't go back to the beginning and explain to you who doesn't understand the Christian lingo how yeah. these words work. Well, what's another verse? Because 614, the, the, it, does, it just says a, that an evil spirit from Yahweh tormented him. It doesn't, the only one that says sent is Holman's, and that one's awful. Uh, <laughs> uh, but... Um, yeah, so there are some ideas that are hard. Um, 
And, and many people ask those questions, uh, you know, how could a good God do this? That, that, that's a very common thing, especially people who don't believe or, or they wanted to believe, but they can't yet. But, um, and I, I've just kind of learned to, to one, in all, in all honesty, we don't actually know all the answers. I don't care who you think you are. Like, none of us know all the answers of why God does what he does and how. Um, but I've learned to just tell people, like, there are some things, there are some things that, will, that will take you a lifetime to understand and make sense of. And right now, you don't even, you're not even claiming to know God on any level. So understanding him is going to be virtually, like, literally impossible. Like, he reveals himself to the children who pursue him. So I've learned to just kind of lovingly say that in a couple different ways and then just invite them into a journey to just knowing God. Like, he will make more sense over time. But trying to make sense of him as a non-believer, non-follower, non, not submitting my heart to the baby steps process of him, you're never going to like that. The, the, I've learned that that's like explaining geog- trigonometry to a baby. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it says that he's veiled. Like, the hearts of man were veiled. And through Jesus, there's an unveiling of our hearts to understand. Um, so, like... There is literally a veil that covers people's hearts where they can't just see him. Although it says in Romans that, uh, that from the beginning of creation until now that everyone could see him because he's hidden himself, his attributes into all of creation. So like there's signs basically everywhere. The blades of grass, the lilies, the trees, the birds, the bees, the, 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 cloud, the clouds of the sky. Everything is pointing people to, to look for a greater truth. Everything. So there's these things that are pointing them, but to actually fully know him and understand him, there has to be a submission and a repentance in place to even begin that process. So explaining it from a, from a um, what, do they call, what do they call it, apologetic standpoint. The best of the best, uh, apologetics, <laughs> still would talk to audiences and at best stump them but not often change them because there's still an availing over the heart that kind of blocks it. So I've learned to kind of skip past those questions and try to get to an invitation to actually just start knowing him. Um, if that makes any sense, at least that's not really a great answer, but that's just, I don't have a great answer. So I found a workaround um, in life in general. Now, the one thing I, yes, ma'am. No, it's Psalm um, 16, 16 says, let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the heart, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. I think that's the other one. From God. Yeah. To use her from God's hand. Um, but distressing was his. Okay, we are running out of time. I'm so sorry. Uh, we are going to run out of time. The kids might come back, and the worst team might just start playing. Um, so I did want to just bring our focus to one more thing that was in the middle of the distressing spirit and all that. Um, but a totally different topic. The story he told, it was easy to miss it the first time because you don't know where he's going. The story he told about the child walking and the picture he painted about backing up from the child and it was good, it was fun, it was good, it was fun and then and then fear and anxiety set in and he saved her and he painted that picture to a, you might be pursuing in truth or whatever relationship, you might be pursuing a withdrawing God who's withdrawing in love. That is a, a really powerful concept to think about. And I know for me, it kind of, um, it did kind of like encourage me to hear that today or when, when I was going over this video a few times. Um, because there are moments where you like, yes, we're like, we're so close to God in this magic moment. It feels so good. And then there are moments where you are 
you know, pursuing God and you feel like you're embarking on journeys that maybe he commanded or whatever. And, and you, and you, it's just not the same, but it, and I'm just that idea of what if it's, you're finding yourself in that scenario where he hits this withdrawing God, but he's not withdrawing for the sake of withdrawing. He's withdrawing for the sake of leading, uh, you know, will you just find more fire to keep walking and keep stepping and keep going? And, and, and I, in that beautiful picture of the child, you know, he will scoop in and save you presumably, when it's too much, but would it be better to just keep finding the courage to, to chase after a withdrawing God? And that's, I don't know if that's withdrawing God might not be the, the most appropriate way to title it, but it's the most descriptive way, especially with the baby story. Um, I just wanted to, I definitely want to touch on that tonight, um, that um, for that part of this, for all of it, he talked about being like, really keep that in mind. Um, if, if just sitting in the lap of the father is your goal, that's a great goal. And you should figure out how to get in the lap of the father. But that might not be his final destination for you. He might stand you on your feet and back up and keep backing up as long as you're willing to run. You know what I mean? So kind of, I just thought that was like a really powerful point of the story and that I wanted to touch base on before we close out. Um, the last um, the last little thing, which is going to be much more relevant in the next the next one is uh, is the, the part two of this. But that they when they went to find David, they found him singing a song that the scholars believe is written in the Psalms um, and just what the context of it all that was. But that um, that he was found, he was plucked out of the abyss of humanity um, because he was singing because of lots of reasons. Sure. But uh, he was singing his song. So many people relegate themselves to God knows my heart. God knows my intentions. And if God wants to do something, he'll just do it. I've heard a million people say, yeah, okay, I technically now believe in this, in the gifts of God. If he wants me to have it, I'm sure he'll give it to me. Um, but there's literally not a character in the Bible who got found or plucked out of the abyss or chosen for anything like that. So it's this, will you cry out to God? Will you sing the song that's in your heart, even if it's just the sheep listening? Will you sing it when the, when the, when, will you be, Will you let out what God put in you if God's going to ever find you or have you found and use you for this greater purpose? So the withdrawing God imagery was very powerful, I felt. And then he ended on a note that he didn't get to elaborate on, but will of that David was found while singing his song. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any 701? Boom. (laughs) Any other quick thoughts or questions or something we can maybe... Put a a pin nail in for next time. And then I want you to go back to, I feel like we should actually have a lengthier discussion, which I think you're setting everybody up for the the withdrawing God. Like, like it sounds like you're setting that up to pick that up next week. I am not necessarily setting that up to pick that up the next week as much as like it was a powerful image this time. We could just come back to that next week if everybody would like. We could could look into that, do some research. It was the first time I've ever heard someone articulate Something that is fairly common, like that when you are intimate with the Lord and you're like, oh, I'm feeling the honeymoon. It's like, it can't get any better. And you're like, oh, wait, 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 okay, okay, okay. And then when I think of it, when he did it as a father, he's doing it because um, you know that that's going to equip them for everything they need in life. They need the muscle growth. They need the balance. They need the equilibrium where it's out up here. Like they, it's like. That imagery, the reason why it was so powerful is because when you made it a parent doing that, it's like, that makes so much sense because that child will only get to their full potential 
because he's moving away. Yeah. And then because there's already a love and a trust, that child's locking eyes. And the only time that anxiousness happens is when the child becomes acutely aware of, like, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with my surroundings. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But if that child kept their eyes, like, for any parent who's done that thing, yeah. as long as the kid is keeping eyes with you, they're like, I love this. I'm not any happier than this right now. Yeah. And the minute they're like, why am I over here in this part of the house? That's when they, like, <laughs> and, like, I think even that version of, like, Ooh, it doesn't have to ever transition to anxiousness if I'm locked eyes with him, which is one of the things David says in the Psalms, like looking yeah. into his eyes. So like, I just feel like that is like... So if you guys want to just elaborate on that more next week, we can, we can dig into that a little deeper. Also, just quick thought, um, how to tell the difference between a loving father backing away from you for the purpose of growth and the distressing spirit coming to Saul. <laughs> I don't know which boat you're in. That'll be next week. Do <laughs> you remember know what psalm that is that he was referring You know, I do. I, I did know because I watched the next video which one it was, but I, can, um, I can't recall it right this time. <laughs> I can look it up and send it out for everybody. I will look that up and send it out for us to be studying that for next week. Yeah, that's good. So, what is in my... In my mind is the thing of a good father helping us to really understand what that means you know and and understand that a good father is a father that does different there's different pieces to this good father thing mm -hmm. it's not just oh I'll give you everything you know yeah I'm a good father and just really helping yeah. us to understand that yeah well, Jesus, right now we just come before you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for these, um, these teachings brought to us to, uh, in this series through, from Ray Hughes. Lord Jesus, we just ask you to expand our hearts. Lord Jesus, we just ask you to give us grace to be comfortable with the times that we sit in your lap and equally as comfortable when yeah. you're, when you're yeah. backing away or withdrawing from us, Lord, for the purpose of growing us and shaping us yeah. and leading us down our road with you. We just ask you, Lord, to let us keep our eyes on you as we are pursuing you and following you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time we have together. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Um, be praying for uh, Kirsten and I. We're going to be going out of town tomorrow uh, for two days to actually go do some work in a rehab um, down in Galax. And just be lifting us up. And um, also, I need some uh, people who are not on the worship team but are willing to come to church uh, a little bit early on Sunday. Some of you already do. But I need people to be dedicated and focused to, uh, committed to showing up and praying over the children's rooms um, before before church service on Sundays. Um, not something I've, that sometimes I do it um, as I'm before I'm preparing for my sermon back there or whatever. Sometimes I go through and pray for each of them. Uh, sometimes, but I haven't made a big deal about it. Uh, long story short, we do have uh, now the one of the children's rooms, the farthest one on the left. Um, they are using that the other days of the week for the AA group, which I am going to work. We're going to be working to rehab. I have a heart for uh, alcoholics and things, um, addicts. However, again, Beck spirit thing, they got problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, they're not here for me to cast them out of them, so they're just coming and going. We need people to commit themselves to showing up, cleaning that room out before the kids show up. Amen. I need the Pentecostals. Yeah. No, no offense. <laughs> All right. We'll see you on Sunday. What?
What I mean is, people who are comfortable in those scenarios. Yeah. <laughs>